long run, passivity won't pay off. It never pays off. If you want a life of meaning and transcendence, you're going to have to move. Aggression doesn't have to be toxic or damaging. Healthy aggression risks. It builds new things. It breaks through barriers. It's the key to living a life that matters. I'm Brian Tome, and this is The Aggressive Life. We're back with yet another politically themed and maybe charged episode. I hope no matter your political leanings, you listen to my conversation with Mike Huckabee, who newsflash is on the right. And once more, I'm going to push you to check your emotions and listen as I welcome Joshua Dubois to this podcast. He doesn't have the name recognition of Mike Huckabee. One thing he does have in common is being firmly on one side of being in the middle. If Mike was on the right side of the middle, Joshua Dubois is on the left side of the middle. He was an incredibly influential force in the Obama White House, and he continues to do influential work on the Democratic side of the aisle. Again, this podcast was recorded in early 2020, so many of the hot topic talking points are not going to be discussed, but I'm confident you're going to learn something, and you're going to leave feeling encouraged, I believe, today, whether you're on the right or on the left. So no matter where you plant your flag politically and ideologically, let's get ready to grow. Well, last episode, we had an aggressive conversation with a political figure on the right. Today, we're going to swing our attention a bit maybe to the left. If that makes you uncomfortable, then tough toenails. It's called the aggressive life. And if you just want someone to tell you whatever you want to hear, then you're on the wrong podcast. It wouldn't be very aggressive. The aggressive move is for you to stick with us, whether we're talking with somebody on the right, whether we're talking with somebody on the left, because that's how you're going to experience things that you wouldn't experience otherwise. Today, we've got a graduate student from Princeton. Uh, This guest saw a speech from then-Senator Barack Obama at the Democratic National Convention, and he made a decision then and there to join the senator's team. He started into politics as Obama's Senate aide, and during the 2008 campaign, he served as Obama's religious affairs director. After the election, he became part of President Obama's first executive team, leading the Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, among other things. He led the president's fatherhood initiative, the administration's work on the religion and foreign affairs, and he began the tradition of the White House Easter prayer breakfast. As President Barack Obama's informal spiritual advisor, he came to be known as the quote-unquote pastor-in-chief. He sent the president daily devotionals to aid in his spiritual health. And since stepping down in 2013 to publish a book and start a consulting firm, he's become a religion and community solutions columnist for Newsweek and the Daily Beast. The Daily Beast. That's no, aggressive. Get a better name. The Daily Beast. <laughs> he's a frequent commentator whose work has been profiled by the New York Times, Washington Post. Yeah, I mean, I don't have to give you all the things. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 it's a long time. We got, we got like... Man, we got tall cotton here today, man. We got big, big big (laughs) stuff. Welcome, Joshua Dubois, to The Aggressive Life. Oh, it's an honor to be here, ready to get aggressive with you guys. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, good. So so just just walk me through this, man. I want want to make sure I understand this. 
how does somebody go? Like, what, what were the tangible steps you did from going to be someone who's passively receiving a commencement address to then having one of the most coveted positions in all of America? I mean, it obviously wasn't something you just you just prayed about. There were, there were things you must have done. To take us back there, tell us. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, praying about it was pr- probably at the heart of it. Um, my stepfather, but he's really my dad. He grew, grew up with him as my dad is, is a minister. Uh, he pastors a church in Nashville. So we moved around a bunch, um, went to undergrad at Boston University, and then uh, got a full ride to go to graduate school at Princeton University, where I studied public affairs there on, on scholarship. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I, was- I, yeah I, I got a full ride to go to Ivy League school, too, because I'm pretty smart, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think it was more because I was pretty broke and I needed the money. So I mean, that's, <laughs> I graduated. Thank the Lord is what I graduated. <laughs> I took me seven years to get my four year degree. So no, go ahead. I'm, I'm just yeah, jealous because you, you actually learned the, the, the value of working in school that I didn't. So I'm sorry, Josh, we'll keep going. Yeah, no, I, I was working full time, um, even while going to school. And one of those jobs it, actually during the summer of 2004, I, I was working on Capitol Hill for a congressman from New York, um, just kind of a gig I got that summer. And after work one day, I, I went to a restaurant. I, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Um, in uh, in faith-based settings, I say restaurant. It was actually a bar on Capitol Hill, but I was just eating a hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you were just I'm eating a hamburger. <laughs> Dude, this is the aggressive life. You don't have to play that game with us. I know, if I know. you were doing a Boilermaker, you can tell us. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I I, I, w- I went after work one day to um to a little spot on Capitol Hill, and I saw a guy who I'd never heard of before, then state senator Barack Obama. He, he wasn't a U.S. senator yet, giving this speech at the Democratic National Convention in, in Boston. And you know, he was talking about a lot of policies that resonated with me, civil rights and so forth. Um, I grew up in Nashville with parents and grandparents that were very active in social movements and the civil rights movement there. And then out of nowhere, he started talking about the awesome God that we serve in the blue states too. I thought, my goodness, I, I don't hear too many Democrats talking like this. I, I know that I'm kind of progressive or moderate in terms of my politics, but I also really love Jesus. And I hadn't heard, you know, people in my party engage their faith in that way. You know, and when he said, awesome God, I was, I, I took me back to being at Fellowship of Christian Athletes camps and put my, putting my arms up and singing, our God is an awesome God. And I just, I don't know, it was just a moment where I think the Holy Spirit used that moment to um, sort of awaken me to the possibility of working for this guy. I would like to say that he hired me right away. He absolutely did not. I sent um, a few letters to his Senate campaign and got some form letter rejections back. And so to make a very long story short, I basically showed up at his office on no less than three occasions. And on the last one, they were tired of me annoying them so much. And so they gave me an informational interview, which led to another interview, which led to a job uh, in Senator Obama's Senate office. A lot of my friends coming out of Princeton were making, you know, six figures doing all kinds of fancy things. Um, the offer that I got from Senator Barack Obama back in those days was $24,000 a year as a junior legislative aide. And I was broke, man. I had student loans from undergrad to pay for. And my mother was like, who are you working for? And what is an Obama? And what do you think you're doing? <laughs> um, but, you know, God just kind of called me to that place. And um, and so I started working for him then. And, you know, one, one of the better decisions that I made, I'd love to think that it was just me, but it was honestly the Holy Spirit just kind of arranging some things in the right way. Gosh, this is... You never know where the conversation is going to go when I start interacting with aggressive folks. You're obviously an aggressive person here because, man, passive people today, they just take whatever the highest paying first job is. That was a yeah. pretty darn aggressive move for you to go, now this is the job I want. I'm going to I'm gonna 
work on less. Just talk about that a little bit longer. What, why, what gave you the ability to do that, even though you had student debt? Was it a vision of the future? Was it uh, you, you, you just ignored finances? Just that, That's a huge, yeah. admirable, aggressive move. And, you know, and I wish I could say I ignored finances, but I just literally could not afford to ignore finances. You know, I'm trying to take myself back to that moment. I think it was, I've always had this impulse, one of being, you know, I deal, I process a lot of fear and a lot of concern and some things that would hold me back. But when I come to the edge of that cliff, and, I, and I'm not one of those type A people that just kind of go, 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 do, do, do. I'm really not. I, I've learned to do that in public, but privately I, I can be more cautious. But when I come to the edge of that cliff, and I just, you know, oftentimes God just says, jump and I got you. And so this was one of those moments where just felt like he was saying, there's something bigger here than what you see in front of you. I actually had another offer from a, um, at a senior role in a nonprofit in New York, making 90 grand a year, um, which w- would have been the move that, I, you know, I think on paper I should have made. But, but something was like, you know, this is, this is where you're supposed to be. I think practically I did. I could see that there was something about this guy where he seemed like he was going somewhere. There was some buzz, there was some energy around him. And I just knew that, you know, if, I, if there was going to be any moment that I could afford to, to take, a, take a hit like this, it would be at that stage in my life before I'm married, before I have kids. And I don't know, man, it just yeah. kind of all came together. I genuinely, I don't want to, you know, be too spiritual about it, but I, I honestly think that a lot of it was just kind of God moving me in this direction. So that, yeah, I think that's what it was. Boy, this, this is so, this is so rich though. It, it, spiritually, certainly, there's a lot of reasons why you you were moved to, to do that. We're speaking the same language there. Uh, at the same time, I just think of, I interact with a lot of younger folks who don't recognize that now is the easiest time to be aggressive. Sure. I mean, by the time you've got kids or you're you're locked into a career path, it's, making a move is is harder than you, as hard as it was for you, you recognize that it was the easiest time for you to do that. That That's pretty admirable. And I think something all of our 20-somethings should hear. Right now, you're poised. Right now. Uh, that's exactly right. One big caveat, and because I talk with a lot of young people about this too, is aggressive and uh, able to do something that I couldn't have done at other points. But it was also in service, in this case, of something bigger than just me. I also talk with a lot of young people that want to go out and build their own individual brand at 22. And maybe for some people that's right. But I, I was aggressive, but I was aggressive in order to get to work. And then I had to put my nose to the grindstone and work hard with a lot of other people and figure out a complex environment and navigate a bureaucracy, you know, both in the Senate and then in the White House for the next 10 years of my life. So I think it is about being aggressive, but it, it, it's it's also about aggressive in service of something that's not just your own goals, but of a you know a broader set of goals. Because you know, again, I only know that because I've probably counseled ten millennials in the last year who I love and Gen Z folks. But it, uh, it's often about I want to go start and build my own personal brand and become a speaker and do all this kind of stuff right. at twenty two, and that's good for some people, but others I think need to start it in in a, in a slightly different place. Yeah, in other words, you want an easy life where you get a lot of fame for yourself. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. So how, uh, that's just old white guy who's cynical speaking right there, <laughs> who's actually trying to build his own brand himself right now. So, you know, I've got, I've got three kids. And so it's hard for me to talk with someone like you, who's a PK and not try to see myself inside of you. Obviously your faith went from 
something that was part of the family business to something that was personal for you. What was the moment your faith got personal? Is there a moment you could pinpoint? Yeah, and, and I've had to sort of be honest with myself about this one and that although I grew up in the church and I loved my church, I loved my dad and his leadership, I still love him, we're, we're very close to this day. I honestly wasn't a believer until I went to college, even though I was in the bureaucracy of the church. I, I didn't know Jesus and I, and I, I mean, I knew him intellectually, but not in a personal way, right? And that said, there were some amazing things, even now at my most challenging, lowest moments, it's often sort of that bedrock stuff, the hymns and the um, and sermons from like my childhood that I go back to that I really lean on now, the simple stuff, not even the com- complex stuff, but you know, the, 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 the simplest things that I remember from, from those early days, but there was a moment when my faith like be- became my own. So I, I, um, grew up in the church and went to Boston and did not go to church at all. or have any connections to my faith for like my, my first two years there, my freshman and sophomore year, my junior year to make a long story short, um, was involved in sort of a social issues campaign. And there was a guy who came up to me who now happens to be one of my best friends and prayer partners to this day and invited me to his tiny little church. Now, my dad had pastored larger congregations and with lots of sort of infrastructure around him. And uh, Eugene Schneeberg, my buddy, was inviting me to this church that had all of 15 members, if you include the pastor's family, and <laughs> met in a, um, a middle school auditorium. And so I really looked down my nose at first. I was like, man, I've been there done that. I know more scripture than you. I know more hymns than you. I've spent my entire life there. I don't need to need to go back. And he just kind of kept on me um, and, and kept inviting me. And then, you know, one day I just kind of gave in because he was um, annoying the heck out of me. And I, I showed up at his church, Calvary Praise and Worship Center, a little Pentecostal church in, in Cambridge. And um, and it was a transformative experience for me because uh, my pastor, Warren Collins, was not talking about the infrastructure of the faith and the and all the the kind of trappings that I had grown up with, but he was talking about the person of Jesus and what Jesus could mean for me if I accepted him personally into my life, and um, and that did it. It was um it was it, it was in a tiny little auditorium with you know like I said ten or fifteen people around me, but that was when um, I came to find my faith for myself. That's amazing to go from there to being quote the head of the Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Is that a cabinet position? Um, it's a White House position, yeah. It's just it, um, there, there are directors of offices in the White House, like the Domestic Policy Director, the National Security Advisor, and the Faith-Based Office is one of those. So it's an assistant to the president. Yeah. So does uh, President-elect Obama come to you and say, I want you to do this job, or do you hear about it from other people? Just, just tell me how the job rolled out and what you did the first couple of days in the job. Yeah, so it was in this on the Senate staff, and then I, I worked on the campaign. I led the religious affairs on the 2008 campaign, and so talked to people of faith around the country about why they should support this guy. Obviously, we won, and so um, he offered this this role to me. Um, there was some talk of getting rid of this position altogether, but he said he wanted to actually expand it, and so he um, he asked me to take the job. Um, and it was, I mean, fascinating. I was 26 years old, as the youngest ever head of a White House office at that point. That, but I should say. Most people, including Barack Obama, had no idea what my age was because I would refuse to tell them. And I'd tell them if they looked at my employee employee records, I'd sue them <laughs> because like, I knew that. Uh, I mean, I was, it was kind of a tongue in cheek. I was joking, yeah. but I, I knew that if that kind of warmed its way into people's heads, they would. I mean, as I would do if I was them, they, they would um, imbue me with certain characteristics that, you know, that that would make my job more difficult to do. And then at that point, my job was to lead 13 federal agency faith-based offices across government, helping them make grants to and support 
grassroots nonprofit organizations and faith-based groups in everything from after-school programs to summer feeding initiatives to, you know, embassies around the world that want to engage the faith community. My job was to coordinate those federal agency offices. So of all the things that you did, what are you most proud of? Yeah, I'm proud of a few things. I, I stepped right into the mix of some really difficult conversations on like race in our country and police violence, um, you know, and um, religious liberty in the Catholic church and all, all sorts of stuff like that, that, you know, were kind of front page news, high stakes stuff. And I hung in there. I didn't always win. My view didn't carry the day all the time, but, you know, it was me in big rooms with big tables with people that had big titles and, you know, fighting a sense of imposter syndrome and so forth. But I, I took a deep breath and I gulped and I sat in those rooms and I made my points. And so, um, and sometimes I, I won, sometimes I lost, but, you know, I, I tried to be, um, as consistent and, you know, as aggressive as, as I could in, in those moments. So that's probably the thing I'm most proud of. I mean, there are definitely some policy wins. We started an interfaith community service initiative at college campuses where, you know, it might be Hillel and the Campus Crusade and the Islamic Student Association coming together to serve their communities together across religious lines. Um, we kicked off a new summer feeding initiative at the Department of Agriculture where we could make sure that through faith-based partnerships, kids wouldn't go hungry in the summer when they didn't have the free lunch that they were getting in the school year. We launched a new um, set of programs at the State Department to, for the first time, bring some structure to our engagement of religious groups around the world. The, the embassies are everywhere, but they didn't have a formal way of engaging the religious leaders around them, and we, and, and we kicked that off. And then we started the President's Fatherhood Initiative where we went around the country talking to dads about the responsibility to be involved in their kids' lives. And so those are those are some more policy-oriented wins and I'm grateful for. Lots of losses, lots of lessons learned. But probably the biggest thing was honestly just hanging in there, being in those rooms and knowing that God was with me. Yeah, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out, 26, you're in that position. You're, yeah, you, I love that line. Big people with big titles, big tables, big rooms, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you're, managing, you're managing different organizations and different budgets in the freaking White House, in yeah. the White House. And I'm thinking to myself, age 30 for me, I think I managed my first budget. The church I started, I think our first year budget was $100,000 our first year. I'm just trying to think, how would I have done three, four years earlier with infinitely more digits and numbers and stuff? You, there, there had to be a time in your life where you felt like you were marked for something. There had yeah. to be a time in your life that was, well, let's go back to this, because I find folks like you don't like talking about this, but like what prepared you? Was there, when, when was the time you realized, ooh, I think God might have his hand on my life in an unusual way? And I'll, yeah. I'll know if you're not telling me the truth, because I could answer this question, so I know you can too. Yeah, Look, I mean, I'm thinking about it as I'm responding. I will say, and this is this is not a recommendation at all to your to your listeners and viewers, but one of the things that probably helped me the most is a complete lack of perspective about how big and scary this stuff was, right? <laughs> like I was I was nose to the grindstone doing what was in front of me, right? And like and that means there was some complex stuff in front of me and I had to like look across the whole not just look at the people in the White House, but in the agencies, not just look at my immediate bosses, but like the press and all this kind of stuff. So it's not that there wasn't complexity, but I never, and I probably should have, but I never took a step back and said, 
or very rarely would I take a step back and say, man, this is crazy. Like, what am I, like how, like I'm, I'm 26 or, you know, I, I was 30 by the time I left, but you know, doing this stuff, like I, I, I actually. But I bet that's because you had an inordinate amount of responsibility placed on your shoulders by your family. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's some, some family, some personal story there that enabled you yeah. to have that perspective. I mean, you know, I, I lost my biological father when I was 24 and, you know, I was the one that organized folks to come together and bury mm-hmm. him. He, he had a complex life, kids in different spaces, and I had to bring those people get together. You know, I navigated the process of getting, you know, myself into college and grad school and finding the money for that because that's some, not something that my parents were helpful and they're amazing, but they couldn't necessarily afford to do, uh, you know, a bunch of that stuff. And I, and I've just always had this sense that like, I, I don't know if I was too stupid or foolish to, to like, to have it, to, to believe that I wasn't just kind of one step away from something really big. Like, why can't I work in the White House yeah. or why can't I be in whatever, you know, get into Princeton or whatever the case may be. I mean, I didn't have any inside yeah. connections. I didn't have any, you know, particular set of resources that would predispose me, but I think it was a level of maybe holy foolishness to just, not understand that this wasn't for me. I just always thought that, you know, if God wanted me to be there and if I, I, you know, took two to three or four steps. And I mean, and I also don't, there's a lot of this was just a lot of hard work too. Like, you know what I mean? Like you had to get up every day at 5 a.m. and write the plan for the day and then go do it. Um, But I I just never thought that these things weren't possible. I think your exact words were 24 a complex process of different kids in different places. Do you mind talking about that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, so, like I said, I grew up with my stepdad, who I consider my dad, Anthony, Reverend Anthony Sinkfield, um, down in Nashville, who, by the way, is just an amazing, amazing man. Um, right now, he's helping his entire community recover after some tornadoes down there in some pretty remarkable ways. Um, but my biological father, Paul Dubois, also a very complex guy. He um, got a PhD from Cornell, but he also passed away in a federal prison. And so lots of complexity to his story in between. Um, he was married uh, multiple times and through those uh, relationships had kids who are my half siblings um, and passed away um, suddenly um, in, in tough circumstances. And so at that moment, because the kids were so scattered and facing their own challenges, myself um, and also one of my half brothers a bit had to navigate the, you know, pulling everybody together and doing a ceremony around where he was born in, in upstate New York. And um, yeah, that w- it was just uh, one of those things where you grow up quickly, right? Um, right. And, you know, and I, I don't actually, it was 2006. So I guess, yeah, I was 23, 24 then. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's, yeah. that's the deal. It was just one of those moments where you, you just, you got to put your big boy pants on and make it happen. Uh, the aggressive life isn't, is not a podcast about the Bible life, but I do have a faith person on here and you're, you're dropping all kinds of faith bombs. I just can't help but respond and, and, and kind of, I, I find this fascinating because just today in my time with God, I was reading in, in Matthew chapter three and, and Jesus is getting baptized and he hears his heavenly father say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Yeah. And every time I read that, it slays me because I'd never have my dad has ever, has ever told me, Brian, well done. You've done well. And I know that a lot of my performance stuff, a lot of my insecurities, a lot of my like, go, 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 probably comes from a bit of a father wound, probably comes from a trying to prove myself. And I'm not going to put my, I'm not going to put my stuff on you at all, Josh. But I, I just think that, man, God never wastes anything, does he? He never wastes anything. He doesn't. 
And, you know, it, I certainly there was a big part of my life that was defined by not being Paul Dubois or wanting to make sure that I did not, you know, end up in that space. I will say, though, I, I'm, I was released from a fair amount of that. Again, at that tiny little church, man, my pastor, Warren Collins, who, by the way, the most amazing man I know, he, he recently lost his wife. Um, he, they were down here visiting with me. His church has never grown over 20 to 20, over about 25, 30 members. And so um, it's one of those. I don't know why there's nothing structurally or about him that. It's always been this uh, a small congregation, and I know that's very frustrating to him, but such a huge impact. And, and I say that related to my dad because there was a service about a year into my time there where he laid hands on me and just I released me of all that stuff from my dad, of the weight of um, of yes. um, just the burden of you know having to not be like him. And I, and I I've struggled with it a little bit since, but not really. It's it, I it's something in that moment I felt uh, you know. Again, not to get too deep about it, but I, I feel like God just kind of released me of that stuff at that point, and I, I haven't haven't worried about, worried about it too much since. So you basically had another father figure basically give you a blessing and do something yeah. that unlocked you. That's, that's powerful. Is that, is that part of why you were uh, really going after the fatherhood initiative under in President Obama's office? What was that about? Yeah, well, it was mostly rooted in President Obama um, and his desire to do this. You know, being a dad is the thing that he just gets a kick out of the most, um, probably the most challenging thing for him. Um, he can't talk about, you know, Malia's birth without crying, for example, but it's, uh, it, it's also the thing that he has the most fun with. And, and he just wanted to share the joy of being a dad and some of the lessons that he learned with as many guys as possible. You know, he, there was a time where he was really aggressively seeking, there was a congressional race that he lost and then state Senate race that he won. And, um, and he wasn't home as much as he should have been. And he's the first person to, to, to say that, to admit that, that there was a time where Michelle had to step up more than she should have had to. He learned a lot from that. And he, and he wanted to um, just communicate with other dads that like, you know, yes, there are some things that require resources, require, you know, th th things from you, but there's a lot of that can be solved with just simply being present and spending that time with your kids. And, and, and he wanted to just use whatever platform he had to encourage that around the country. So a lot of that came from him. From nearly any statistical marker, whether you're a father or you're not a father, men are, are struggling in America. We're four times more likely to have suicide, four times more likely to have alcohol-related incidents, two times as likely to have a mental illness. I mean, we're, we're hurt, man. You have an opinion on why this is? I think it's, I think one of the biggest things is we don't have enough people to formally talk to. I am a big believer in Christian counseling. Um, my wife and I go from time to time for some checkups. Sometimes, you know, in, thankfully not in the last few years, but in years past, it was in, in times of intervention, right? When you need, you need some emergency help. And I go by myself as much as I can. I come together with a group of guys every Tuesday morning to just kind of talk about our stuff. I don't think that is as common as it as it needs to be. We have a lot of things we have to unpack. The responsibility to care for our families and complex issues related to masculinity, and you know maybe sometimes it's failures at work or at home or whatever. And we feel like we got to do this by ourselves, or if we're doing it with other people, it's got to be in little tiny bits or couched in you know masculine language and so forth. And you know I'm as much of a guy's guy as anybody, but but we we don't we don't have enough space to be vulnerable. I think that's a lot of it. Um, and yeah, part of what I want to do in the long run with my life is create more of those spaces for men. That's fantastic. You you worked very closely with, you know, arguably one of the, you know, the most influential men, at least in the last couple of decades in American history, like him or not, President Obama. You work with him very, uh, very closely. What do you what do you admire about our former president so much? 
Yeah. Um, you know, commitment to his family is a big thing. He was probably the most prepared person in any room that I was in, which became very frustrating at times. Like you do a memo or, you know, whatever, and you'd walk in there um, and he would have re- read everything you wrote. And so he's like, okay, what else do you have to add? Cause I already read your stuff that you sent over. Um, you know, he's putting the kids to bed um, when they were younger and then spending a few more hours getting ready for the next day. And so preparation, I think was, you know, it's, it, it was exhausting watching him and some of the other senior folks in the, in the white house. One of the things I took away from that, just, you know, a bit of an aside is that I, I had a lot more empathy for people on both sides of the aisle that were in these more senior positions because say what you want to about them. Um, and then there's a lot to be said. They worked really, really, really hard. And they, it wasn't necessarily for the money, right? They weren't, you know, there's other occupations that would have paid them a lot more because they believed in what they were doing. Like President Obama and Valerie Jarrett and others, they just worked there, but they work harder than me. And I worked hard, but they, they were doing even more hours, right? And so that's one of the things um, I think I'd take away. One of the things I probably would, would criticize the most, um, I love him. He's a strong character, great family man. On the basketball court, he's an absolute hack, and that's. <laughs> Does he not call his own fouls? Does he not call his own fouls? Problem is, I mean, he's elbowing and he's all kinds of stuff, but you can't do anything because there are men with M16s ten feet away from you, and so if you try to like, you know, hit him back, then are you there's serious? No one ever got rough with him again. Well, they did. I mean, I don't know if there was hey, actually. I mean, he had to take that. Okay, I, mean, he would, I bet he would have been he loved that. He took it just fine, but he gave it out more than he talked so much trash, <laughs> man. It was, I love him in every other setting, at church, at home, at work. I will. I refuse to play basketball with Barack Obama <laughs> for, for that reason. No, just, just kidding. But he, does he, he have game? Can he back it up with his shot? Game. He's got a little jumper. Um, he's um, he's learned that you know that the the skill that um, I need to learn now because as I get up uh, up there in age a little bit, he's learned that old man game. You know how to conserve energy, yes. right? Not do not do too much, but still, and part of it is psychological. You got to get in people's heads, and he's learned how to get in people's heads talking trash up and down the court. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk. Let's talk politics in our nation, if we could. Here, yeah. Here's what I think is so interesting. I uh, I just got done recording a podcast with Mike Huckabee, who is obviously on the right. I'm now yeah. recording a podcast with Josh Dubois, who is obviously on the left. And I talked to you, I talked to, I talked to, um, talked to uh, Huckabee, I talked to anybody on the right. I talked to anybody on the left. And every time I'm like, I like that guy, I like that guy. But why is it in our culture and country, we, we can't talk to each other anymore? What, what, what do you think is wrong with us politically right now? I mean, I don't know anybody who likes this, but I don't hear anybody who's got an idea as to how to change it. Yeah. Well, I would say one of the biggest things is there are organizations, people, institutions on both sides that have every incentive to keep us divided. In Mm -hmm. fact, that's their reason for existing. Then they are the ones with the money. They're the ones with the platforms. Um, I, you know, I won't call any particular media outlets out, for example, but there are those on both sides that they, their ratings are driven by, as much um, division as possible. There are politicians on both sides whose support is driven by making people as angry and as fearful and as divided as possible. That's how they bring people to their side. There are interest groups who need to justify their existence by pushing people into one corner or another. And so the vast majority of us who find themselves somewhere in the middle 
There's no organized constituency there. There's no political action committee for people who just want sane politics, no matter <laughs> left or right. And so, you know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about and trying to encourage where I can, you know, and again, I'm not in politics anymore. I run two businesses and that's the space where God has me now, but is just encouraging people to not just be quietly civil, but to be actively civil, right? So when, you know, when you see something that is in, uncivil on either the left or the right, like, you know, the natural instinct for just good, decent people is to just be quiet and say, well, those people are crazy. I'm going to leave it alone. As opposed to like aggressively stepping out there and saying, nope, that's not the way things should be. And so, you know, I'm still wrapping my mind around it, but I feel like there's got to be something where we are creating incentives for people to be reasonable. Because right now they're just, those incentives just don't. So instead of just checking out, which is what most of us do who are fed up, you're, you're saying maybe we shouldn't be checking out. Maybe we should be vociferous or annoying to get people to be less annoying. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, when, um, uh, there are lots of, you know, reasons why folks, for example, criticize my old boss, Barack Obama. There are some that were just not true and unreasonable. And you saw in those email forwards, right? And so it's, it's those people who reply all and say, Hey, I don't agree with him on this issue or that, but I, I know he's not the antichrist, right? I know he's not, you know, and I'm like, right. whatever. And the same thing, like when, if, when people, you know, George Bush, for example, took a lot of justified criticism and unjustified criticism. And it, it took a special person on the left or in the middle to say, you know what, I, I may disagree with this policy or that policy, but we should we, we need to be careful about the personal attacks. Uh, but again, most most of the time, because th- that means that you're speaking out, you know, oftentimes against your own tribe or background or, or folks uh, in, that are in your space, we just would prefer to be silent. And I think we need more people to be actively civil in those spaces. So when you come into a, a presidential election like we are right now, uh, or you look at any candidates, how, how do you personally filter candidates? Like, do you look at policies first, character second, character first, policy second, faith? I mean, do, do you have a like a checklist that you have? Like, oh, when I think about somebody Here's how I rank it before I get into a voting booth. Yeah, I mean, I look at, I definitely look at both. Also, um, know that like policies are critically important. They're also really, really tough to get big things done, particularly with a divided Congress, right? And so, character matters a lot to me, right? Character matters a whole lot because if you if you have a strong character and a strong value base, then you know I'm going to be comfortable that in the long run, and I mean the really long run, after you know, the policies have been reversed three or four times or, you know, cut back or advanced or whatever the case may be, that we will be a stronger country because we're electing leaders with character. Again, whether they're conservative or, or progressive, for me, character, integrity, values, including family values, um, those, those things matter a whole lot. Boy, it's hard, though, to think about a day when the majority of our politicians who are running could have character and family values. It seems like the the doggy dog nature of getting to the senior levels of our political office just weeds a lot of good folks out. I mean, that's I I don't know how you do that without selling your soul to some degree. Yeah, I mean, I I think there are some prominent examples that feel like that look like they've gone astray. I think there are some prominent ones on both sides that 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 haven't. You know, again, from a character perspective, you know, you look at folks like. Um, George W. Bush and, and his dad as well. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, just character and integrity perspective, I think my old boss, folks like Vice President Biden and others, um, there are 
you know, they're strong Republican senators. I mean, like a John McCain, a lot of folks yeah, disagree with right. John McCain on lots of things, but like, you know, he was, he was a war hero who, um, who stood his ground on issues that he cared about. He upset a lot of liberals. He upset a lot of conservatives, um, but she didn't question his integrity. So maybe there's more people than, than I'm giving credit for. Maybe I'm personally just overly tainted by the news cycle that we're in right now. Because yeah. I personally am just very discouraged by just the whole political discourse. No, I'm discouraged discourse, so. too. Um, I think some of the more prominent examples are, are more challenging examples, but there are still some good folks out there. All right. Here we go. I'm going to go into lightning round. You ready? Lightning yeah, round is this. I'm going to, I, I, I say something and you have to answer back in three sentences or less. It's like quick, quick, chop, chop. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. Here we go. Historical political figure you admire the most besides President Obama. Fannie Lou Hamer. All right. See, this is my problem. Every time I do lightning round, I'm like, I got to, now I got to Fanny Lou Hamer. I'm yeah, sorry. Lou Hamer I, I, was, I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna betray my whiteness. Something tells me I don't no, know that I'll name be because I'm that. white. I would be happy. <laughs> Fanny Lou Hamer was born in Mound Bayou, Mississippi. Um, she she was uh, had about a third or fourth grade education and went on to speak on the floor of the Democratic National Committee in the 1960s as the founder of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. She registered more African-Americans to vote in Mississippi um, than anybody else. Um, she was beaten within an inch of her life by some racists and Klan members um, and then came out of that uh, to continue to be one of the most um, important political leaders in the South in the 60s. Her story needs to be told more. She is my absolute historical icon. And she did this at a time where you know, even among African-American pastors and leaders, there are a lot of men who didn't want a woman um, leading them, but she led anyway. Um, she's absolutely amazing. I'd encourage everybody um, to get to know Fannie Lou Hamer. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. Okay. Well, just, Little known, but very, but huge impact. Well, there you go. I mean, that, that's also, you know, we all have a, our default culture that sometimes locks us away from other things and other cultures. I'm, I'm ashamed that somebody who's that significant, I've never even heard no, her name no, before. She, her story has not, you shouldn't be ashamed at all. Her story hasn't been told nearly enough, but once you dig into it, she's pretty remarkable. Question number two, what do you see that's going right in the nation right now? Yeah, a few things. Um, I think there's, I, I love the consensus around some big issues like human trafficking. And I know you guys have done a lot of work on, in that space and criminal justice reform across the left and the right. You know, I, I think that's, um, that's going really well. I mean, this is more parochial, but, um, you know, the Washington Redskins have the number two pick in the NFL draft. I'm really excited about that. And my Nationals won the World Series. And so that's going right. Uh, things are trending in the right direction for my hometown teams right now. Uh, but, yeah, those are uh, policy issues. And, 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 and this is a good time for the sports teams that I care most about. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> as someone who identifies with the left politically, what do you expect about someone on the right? Remember, this is lightning round. Quick, quick, chop, chop. Yeah. Individual charity. I think people on the left too often, you know, they want to focus just on the structural stuff, but not on actually giving in ways that, that impacts people's lives. And you know what? A lot of times folks in their more conservative spaces get criticized for not doing this structural change or that one, but they are putting their money and their volunteerism and their mouth uh, where their mouths are. And, um, and I'm seeing that around the country. And I think the left could learn from that. What do you see about politicians on the left? And by the way, all these questions are the exact opposite or the same as we asked Mike Huckabee. So yeah. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you see about politicians on the left that you wish that they would change? 
maybe not painting, you know, for example, moderate or moderate to conservative faith communities with one broad brush, right? You know, not um, not everyone is, you know, a kind of a limbing following, you know, these these big leaders off a cliff. There are some people who've made reasoned, considered decisions to be where they are based on their faith or their views of policy, and that doesn't mean that they're bigots or that they're wrong because you dis- they disagree with this thing or that. And so I think we got to have a more nuanced view of people who may be on the other side of the aisle from us politically, um, and I think the progressives could do more. Reason you think anger is so prevalent in our country. People are scared. I think they're scared of losing authority. They're scared of ceding more power. They're scared of not having enough for retirement and not having enough for their kids to be okay. And um, and it's the easiest thing when you're scared and you're backed into a corner is to point at somebody else as opposed to unpacking that fear in a healthy way and in a way that God would want us to do. Um, and so I think it's because people are scared. All right. I'm going to tell you my final question because yeah. I'm going to give you some time to think about it. But before you answer that, but by the way, the final question is going to be this. It's going to be, if you had two minutes to give a speech at the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention, and it had to be the exact same speech word for word, what would you say? So that that's, that's the hard last question. But um, here's the easy second last question. If someone wants to connect with you, Joshua, where can they connect with you or follow up with you or see what's going on with you? Yeah, my Twitter is just at Joshua Dubois. My website is just joshuadubois.com. Um, my company is Gage, and the website is gage.ai. Yeah, those are the main ways. Joshua At Joshua Dubois on Twitter is probably the easiest way. Um, and for my speech, let's see here. Um, this should be a I fantasy would, for you. I'm sure you've thought about no, this. Come on, know. man. It's funny. Like, years in politics have disabused me of the idea that I ever want to be in politics directly. <laughs> um, so I don't I – don't, this is – it's more of a nightmare than a fantasy. That said, um, <laughs> although I respect the, the occupation a lot. So my speech would probably be, let's just put down the swords for a little while and, and, and take a five to 10 year break of the bickering and, and the fighting and focus on the four or five things that we really want to do together as a country. Let's make sure that folks can retire with dignity and so that folks are not reaching their twilight years and feeling like they're stressed out because they don't know where their income is going to come from. Let's make sure every school in this country, whether it's a public or, or private school is educating our kids in a way that's preparing them for their future. Let's make sure nobody in the United States of America ever goes to bed hungry in that um, we are both, we both have a strong system of justice, but we also have a lot of grace when people do something wrong. If we can focus on just a few big areas, cross political lines, we can get a lot done together and let's put everything else to the side for a little bit, um, and just come together on those things. That would be a fascenating fantasy. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that would be like, what, what would I dream ha- more yeah, like? <laughs> well, I don't know, but that, that would be really wild if you just said, okay, just for, just for the next two or four years in American history, not permanent, Let's like, yeah. if you could get people together and say, let's choose the things we want to knock out and let's just take yeah. a, have a four year pe- ceasefire yeah. on each other. But it's a hard reset. You control yeah. all the bad boy. I, but you're right. I don't know that it could happen because we're so addicted to anger anymore. We're so addicted to, to listening to people who have a financial interest and in, in stoking the fire. So man, I, I, I appreciate your passion. Joshua Dubois, this has been fantastic. Welcome to the aggressive life. I hope to see you face-to-face and give you a big hug and a sloppy kiss sometime in the near future. (laughs) Let's do it. All right. right. Bless you, brother. Uh Uh-huh. 
Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band judges for the music. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.